Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. So, I think that's all I have to say about announcements. I guess we'll get into our teaching for the day. Uh, so, I, I had the privilege of taking a bus ride. I have not been on a school bus since, I think, since my freshman year of high school. Well, I guess I rode it for sports later than that. But it's been a long time since I've been on a school bus. And I got to ride a school bus out to Canyon Creek Middle School down in Washougal. Does anyone know where that is? You, oh, that's right. <laughs> David, David rode with me. David. <laughs> Lori, all right, a few of you, yeah, that's right, you guys are, okay, so David and I coached middle school basketball at Coweeman Middle School here in town, we had an away game down there, and I drew the short straw of all the coaches, so I got to ride the bus with all the kids, and, uh, and so we're driving down there and on Wednesday, and it is such a beautiful day, and you turn on Highway 14, and you're heading straight at Mount Hood, and it's just covered in snow, and the sun's shining, because it's late in the day, so the sun's shining on the mountain, and the river looks beautiful, and and I'm sitting in the front seat of the bus because uh, that's where you know the coaches sit, and so it's just big windows, right? Like it's even different than being in a car, just big windows. And I'm just going, man, this is incredible. Look at the mountain, you guys. This is beautiful. And a kid looks up from their phone, yeah, awesome, and then looks back down. <laughs> what are you seeing this? And, uh, you know, lo and behold, the middle schoolers just didn't care as much as I did, which reminded me of, of different ha- things that happened when I was, you know, growing up or even things that I've said to my kids when we're driving around in the car where you're like, look out the window, get your eyes off that. De-. And when I was, you get your eyes out of the book, um, you know, now it's get your eyes out of that device. Like, look out the window, you're missing out. Can you believe what's going by? And, and I remember as a child thinking, man, these two people are crazy. What are they? I don't care what's outside the window. I just want to, you know, read my book or, I don't know, mess around with my siblings. Um, but I, you, when you're, when you're a, a parent or when you're a coach and you're trying to allow these kids to experience the wonder and the beauty that God has created, you, you get a little bit uh, pushy about how much they should be checking it out. And I really think that's because part of of just the pleasure of experiencing something is being able to share it with other people and experience it with them as well. And so, you know, thankfully the bus driver and I had our moment uh, driving and admiring the beauty. <laughs> the middle schoolers, not so much. Um, so when we are passionate about something or when we're excited about something, it it really is part of the experience to want to share that with other people. So the last couple of weeks... I've been talking about my core passions. Well, last week I talked about the first one. And, and this whole idea resulted from someone asking me a number of weeks ago, what, what is it that you're really passionate about? And I took some time to think on that, and I came up with three things. And then I thought to myself, I, I should share these with, with the church. And um, I think partly because it just seems fair for you to have, you know, to have some insight about who I am. And then also because... This is part of me enjoying the things I'm passionate about, like sharing them with others and hoping that other people will be equally as excited. 
Um, and so you don't have to uh, you don't have to get as excited about these as you maybe would about Mount Hood with the snow and the sunshine on it. But hopefully, as I just share my heart on these things, you'll, your own heart will be moved to some degree, at least enough to take a look up from your book and, and check it out. So uh, the one that I shared last week, the first, the first of my passions is, is living loved by our Savior, um, which just comes from that belief that if we're not experiencing God's love, in the context of our lived experience, in the context of our daily lives, you know, day in, day out, then I don't think it really matters what else we do. I don't think it really matters what else we might believe. If you're not experiencing his love, if everything that you do and your conceptualization of yourself doesn't somehow flow out of experiencing the love of God in your life, then um, then I just think there's, there's way too much of our human needs in our human deficits, there's way too much of our human baggage. It, it weighs us down, and that's no place to live out of. And so, um, and really difficult, I would say impossible, to live into things that are, that are wholly good and things that are, that, you know, are genuinely uh, of God's goodness. And so, um, I have to confess, you know, because of my own journey with the Lord the last number of months, I'm, I'm pretty high on life right now, living loved by my Savior. Um, he's just been this incredible refuge for me when the, you know, any kind of stormy seasons and, and then his, his fellowship, I just find the nearness of it really, really, uh, real right now in my life. It, it, I can feel his presence with me, carrying me through the weeks and, and the various different things. Um, we, I, my wife and I were up to watch the sunrise, uh, yesterday morning and we were sitting in our hot tub and we were watching the sunrise, and it was so beautiful. And for a moment, I'm just like that verse just comes across my mind. His mercies are new every morning. And I was like, oh, God, what a beautiful, clear, wonderful day. Like, and feeling his presence in the, in the experience of watching the sunrise. Like, my life hasn't always been this way. I'm not always feeling God's nearness in that way. But I'm, I'm pretty excited about living in his love during this season. Um. When we live in God's love, it, it, it changes us. It impacts us. When we experience God's love, if you felt bonded to him, you, you know what it is to begin to, uh, to begin to care about the things that God cares about. You know what it is to, um, to begin to see the, the tug on your heart, your passions becoming things that God is passionate about. This is just what happens when you experience living in his love. And, and God, though he may be many things, he's revealed clearly in Scripture to be someone who is not about himself. You know, the king who committed to serve his people is not about himself. The, the God who laid down his life, the God who chose to die rather than see his creation separated from him in death, is not about himself. And I really think that when we truly experience God's love, we become less and less about ourselves as well, which leads me to my second core passion. The second core passion that I have, the thing that gets me out of bed and gets me through my week and, and keeps me true to this whole life calling of, of being a pastor, that, that, that passion of mine is I'm passionate about the church getting outside of itself to love the lost. 
if you're uncomfortable with that kind of categorizing language of the lost, then we can just say, I'm, I'm passionate about the church getting outside of itself to, to love others, to love those who are outside of the church. You know, for God, uh, in his place in heaven, watching things unfold here on planet Earth, it, it wasn't enough for Christ just to dwell in the safety of heaven and be an observer of what was going down. It wasn't. And, and so God, because he loved the world so much, his son came, right? He sent his son to dwell with us, to join us in our humanity, that we might be lifted up and joined to him in his divinity. And when our hearts experience the love of God, when we embrace the truth that God is, you know, has joined himself to us in such a way, I, I truly think that something happens inside of us where we're no longer intent, content to enjoy the safety of our own circles, right? We, we feel the tug. When we watch the world around us and we see what's happening in the lives of people around us, we feel that tug on ourselves too. Where we're like, it wasn't enough for Jesus to just hang out in heaven and watch it happen, and it's not enough for us to just hang out in our safe circles and watch things happen as well. This means that the people of God behave very differently when they're living in God's love. In a world where we're told that, um, sorry, in a world where we're, we're told that uh, others are people to be feared, we look at others and we believe that they're people to be loved. In a world where we're told that people who are suffering are just getting what they deserve, we're moved by compassion to alleviate their suffering. In a world where we are taught that there isn't enough to go around, so you better make sure you get your share before other people take it all and you're left with nothing. We're people who live generously and share what we have with others. The people of God are called to live differently. And when we live in God's love, our hearts are changed. I think we can't help but live differently when God's love is impacting us in that way. Our hearts are changed and we're moved by compassion when we see suffering, when we see a stranger, our hearts are, are moved to be open, to welcome the stranger in. When we see our enemies, our hearts are moved to be merciful. We say, we forgive you. We love our enemies. Of course, that statement, we love our enemies, was a line straight from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded early in the book of Matthew. Um, and Jesus had a lot of commands for his disciples over the time that he walked with them. And his followers really believed that his words meant something. The last command that Jesus gave before he ascended uh, back to heaven, that's, as recorded in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, is out of Matthew chapter 28. This is at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. The disciples are gathered on a mountain somewhere in Galilee. Jesus meets them there. And Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 says, Jesus came to them and he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then he left them with these words. He said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus tells his disciples to go, or to go and make disciples. This is what you know, theologians call the Great Commission. Maybe you've heard that before. It's this idea that 
Jesus, in his final moment, gave a commission or a mandate to his followers saying, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, when we conceptualize discipleship in our modern age, I, I, I think that we think of things a little bit differently than what Jesus meant when he said that word. You know, the Renaissance happened a few hundred years ago, and ever since then, the highest forms of learning in Western society have largely been and increasingly been relegated to a classroom experience where people sit and listen to a lecture, not unlike what we're doing this morning, right now. <laughs> and discipleship is seen as a high calling, and so it's like this discipleship, it, it's a high calling. This calls for some high learning, right? And so oftentimes what we will find is discipleship classes or new believers classes, or you might at times be feeling like, what I really need is a class to help me do this. Where, where, or maybe where can I sign my kid up for a class so that they can, you know, get, get a, a program for them so that they can figure out how to do this thing right. How long does it take a, to make a disciple? How long would a good discipleship class last? I mean, I have found that getting people to commit to something for more than six weeks is extremely difficult. And if you can get them to come for four of those six weeks, you're doing really well. So six weeks? Can we make disciples in six weeks? Just bring them in and churn them out? Wouldn't it be great? Um, that's, that's not quite how it works. You know, the people who wrote the word disciple when they were writing scripture, um, they had a very different idea of it than we do now. It wasn't so much about programs or classes. Um, they thought of learning differently than we do now. I would argue they thought of learning probably more accurately than we do now. You know, some years ago, I took an anthropology class on uh, language development. And I remember being so surprised to learn that babies, as they're learning to talk, decode a language largely through observation and imitation. And so you imagine these little tiny babies who are, you know, sitting, because that's all they can do is sit or lie. They're sitting and observing the world for a couple of years. And they're seeing things, and they're hearing things, and then they begin to mimic the things that they see and the things that they hear. I remember as a young father coming to the realization that if my kids didn't get to spend time with their mother, they would never learn to talk because I didn't use nearly enough words when I was around them. We would just sit in silence and enjoy one another's company, and they would have never learned to talk. So thank you, Laura, for saving our kids. Um, the thing is, is that through this process of observing and, and uh, imitating, kids begin to understand complex rules of language and language structure and how language works. And we actually see this. Uh, a common place you might see this is when a child incorrectly conjugates a verb. So the kid might say something like, I run to the pool. And you're like, no, that's wrong. You ran to the pool. But the fact that the child says run means that it understands the rule of the language. What, it doesn't under what the child doesn't understand, what they don't understand, it sounds kind of harsh. What they don't understand is the absurd exceptions to the rules that we have in English. Where it's like, yeah, I know the rule is you usually add an ed to the end of the word, but for these particular words, just because we're going to change the middle letter for some unknown reason, and you got to figure that out. Um, most of what children learn is through 
imitation. They watch, they listen, they soak up information, and they learn how to operate. For much of the history of the world, the, the human learning was all about watching, learning, imitating, participating with a, a master, um, and, and learning as you go through imitation and observation. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, so humans really learn most efficiently in this way. Uh, and, and often, and you're even seeing a trend in higher education of trying to figure out how to create more hands-on type experiences. You're seeing a trend in churches, how to not just spend the church in a lecture hall. Like, how do we get people to engage with the material we're trying to teach them so that they can practice? In other words, so they can imitate the tactics or the things that are trying to be taught and have some failures and success on their own. Um, so prior to the Renaissance, most learning was done through this kind of hands-on imitation. And really, disciples, especially in the you know first century Judea, were, they weren't people who signed up for a four-hour class. They weren't people who showed up for, you know, one class a, a weeknight for two years, and now you're a disciple. They're people who followed their rabbi. Do you know the stories of Jesus calling his disciple, and he comes up to this one while he's fishing at his boats, and he says, come and follow me. And that person leaves the boats and follows Jesus, and is now Jesus' life has become his life. And where Jesus goes, he goes. Where Jesus eats, what Jesus eats, he, he eats. And, and where he sleeps, he, he sleeps. They follow in the rabbi's footsteps. And what happens when people spend that kind of time together? Think about the people in your life who you spend the most time eating what they eat, going where they go, sleeping where they sleep. These are the people that you are closest to. You cannot spend that kind of time with people and not develop a really strong connection. And when discipleship breaks free from the classroom or where it was initially planted, not in the classroom, you see things like community being built. And what you're really seeing is the fact that love is happening. When Jesus said, make disciples, I really think he meant for that to look a lot more like deep, loving relationships than programs. I think what he was picturing in his mind was a lot more like some kind of covenantal walking together than signing up for a six-week class or learning the right answers to the test. After you've, after you've memorized this material, you're now a disciple. I really think Jesus had in mind something that was deeper and more relational than that. I can remember in my own life, in my own journey, tapping into this truth. When I graduated high school, I went and spent six months with an organization called Youth with a Mission. I was doing a discipleship training school there. And there were lectures, and there was homework, but also I was immersed into this discipling community. And so I had a, a room, uh, uh, an apartment full of six roommates where everything that we did, we did together. Uh, there was shared living. There were shared meals. There were shared opportunities to do the stuff that we were learning about in classes. Things on and, and part of the school is an outreach mission trip to a overseas destination, and we were doing street ministry and opportunities to walk with the people who were discipling us and do the stuff and, and learn uh, together. 
And that was a season in my life when I look back on it, I was growing in leaps and bounds. I also developed deep and meaningful relationships with people. About 15 years after uh, DTS, so this is like a whole other life, right? 15 years later, I mean, I'm now a dad with three kids of my own. And my wife and I ended up going on a mission trip to Cambodia. And we were able to connect with one of my roommates from my discipleship training school. And um, I can remember the, the, you know, if, if you've ever reconnected with someone after a long period of time, you know, a decade and a half of not seeing them, you're always, maybe you're kind of wondering, what is that going to be like? I was like, what's it going to be like to see Matt again? And the moment I saw him, it was, it, we just picked up right where we left off. It just, this is my brother. We felt, we felt so close. There was a real bond there. When Jesus said, go make disciples, I really think that he had something like that, something very relational in mind. When he said to his disciples, make disciples, teaching them to obey all everything that I've commanded you, I really believe that Jesus in his mind, of course, had when he, the time that he said to them, this is my commandment, that you would love one another as I have loved you. I really believe that the Great Commission pushes the boundary of relational discipleship even further, though. Because he's not just telling his disciples to love each other, but he's telling them to go and make disciples of all nations. Discipleship of the nature that Jesus had with his followers was something that was, was limited to the opportunity to be a part of it, was limited to the Jewish people living in Jesus' day. The Jewish rabbis called Jewish people to be their disciples. And Jesus' great commission is to make disciples of all nations. And so it's just blowing down the boundaries that would have drawn a circle around who is it that you can call to be disciples. Often in the church nowadays, we differentiate between uh, discipleship, which is like this idea of, of, you know, intense Christian instruction for the people who want to be mature, we differentiate that from the concept of evangelism, which is the idea of sharing the truth of Jesus to people and allowing them to respond to that or inviting them to respond to that, um, getting people to accept Jesus, right? Um, reading Scripture as, as much as I have and, and having studied this for as long as I have, I really don't understand why we think of these things differently. And I wonder what it would look like if... If the church's evangelism strategy was less about getting people to, uh, to make a, a decision in a moment in time and hope that that decision sticks forever, and, and more about a call to discipleship, more about an invitation to come and follow me. Come and eat what I eat. Come sleep where I sleep. Come be a part of my life and imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is, of course, a super risky, uh, a super risky uh, venture. Uh, if we let's say we were going to have an evangelism night, and we were like, okay, uh, Friday night, uh, we're going to have evangelism night. Bring your friends who aren't Christians down to the church. We'll feed them some good food. We'll talk about Jesus. We'll we'll play some fun games. We'll love them, and then at the end of the night, we will uh, well, we'll have you know someone really good at influencing people give an altar call. And then, and then maybe some people get saved, and then maybe they'll start coming to church with us. And if we can just get step one done, 
then we'll worry about discipleship later. What would it look like if instead the evangelism strategy was, hey, you're living your life, you're out there, invite people to be a part of it. And this is risky, right? Because if we're having evangelism night, I can control the environment. I can, for, for two hours, I can put on a good show. I can make sure that my smile's just right and I, I don't yell at my kids at all. And, I, you know, I, this is, look at what a perfect community you could be a part of. If you just sign here on the dotted line. Um, inviting someone into a relational discipleship relationship means they're now in. And they get to see my good days, and they get to see my bad days. They get to see my good moments. They get to see the moments when I'm embarrassed that I'm here to see them. You know, I just can't get away from myself. It's risky. But I wonder what it would look like. I wonder how effective it would be at growing the kingdom and inviting people in if we thought of these things a little differently. What would it look like if we saw discipleship as being for everyone? You know, really, discipleship becomes a process through a process of salvation rather than the next step for the people who are already saved and want to be super Christians. Like, discipleship is the process by which people become saved. You you know, imagine this. Jesus' disciples were his disciples before... Jesus died on the cross and paid for their salvation. They were his disciples before they even really realized who Jesus was. He called them into discipleship before they ever prayed a sinner's prayer. You begin to realize that there could be a different way of thinking about this. What would it look like for you and me to begin to call disciples from among our work friends, from among our family friends, from among our neighborhoods? What might happen if we didn't have to already be a Christian to be a part of Renewal's discipling efforts? Again, we're talking about life-on-life, relational, community-building discipleship that is aimed at anyone who will respond. Who's willing to come and do life-on-life with me, with you. And that's who we're discipling. Traditional Christian evangelism tends to focus on making converts. The step is to get them to convert, and then we'll worry about discipleship later. Get them to seal the deal, get them to pray the prayer, get them to raise the hand with every head bowed and every eye closed. I really think the problem with making people converts is that If they've been converted once, they tend to be easily converted again to something else. Discipleship is not about making converts. It's about lifelong relationships, life-on-life relationships. I think evangelism efforts that tend to be focused on a specific result rather than the actual rigorous process that it is of growth and maturity, I think those efforts end up coming up short. I really believe that the kingdom doesn't need more converts. I really believe the kingdom needs disciples. The kingdom needs people who are willing to count the cost 
and follow Jesus. And people who are willing to invite others to follow them will they follow Christ. The kingdom needs people who are willing to share their lives with the lost, willing to share a meal with the lost, willing to invite the lost in close enough to see you fail, to see you fall, to see you learn, to see you love, to see you walk through life and embrace correction with humility, to see you sacrifice for the sake of another person. To see you beyond your Sunday best. I imagine my life this week, and I know my, my, this week, I'm, I'm going to, to go out. And my mindset is I want to invite people to come into my life and to walk with me as I walk with Christ. There's a guy I have some history with who, who works at one of the local convenience stores. And, um, and, and every time I go in there, he comes out from behind the counter and he gives me a hug, and we catch up for a while about what's going on and how life is. And, and if someone said, who's your, who's your disciples, James? I'd be like, this is one of them. And, and sometimes I'm thrilled if we've run out of something so I can run to the convenience store and, you know, get it. Because I just don't have that relationship with my grocery store checkers. Uh, this is someone that I'm, 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 you know, the invitation keeps going out. Every time I walk in, the invitation is going out. Come, be a part of my life. Learn from me. Um, I talked about coaching basketball, and, and I know David and I and, and, our, and our other coach, you know, we're there with middle school basketball kids, and I coach some tournament teams as well. So I'm there with the kids and their families, some of the families I've walked with for years. And I'm saying, come into my life. Be a part of my life. See who I am. See how God is impacting me. Come and join this journey. Now, I'll admit, as I've, you know, wholeheartedly embraced this idea of relational discipleship, relational evangelism, that over the years, trying to count converts, gets a, it gets a little bit uh, depressing. It's like, man, these people just aren't sealing the deal like I thought they would. But this series is about my passions. My passion is not getting converts. My passion is not getting people to sign on the dotted line. I am I'm not a salesman at all. It's about inviting people into my life to watch, to imitate, and, and to follow me as I follow Christ. And I hope that in your journey with Christ, you will be doing the same for our community because this community needs Jesus. And there are people out there that I, I know the Spirit is saying to them every day, come and follow me, come and follow me. And I think... Perhaps uh, what the Spirit is waiting for is for the church to join him in that message and go out in the community and say those things as well. So let's pray, and then we'll take a minute to a few minutes to discuss this. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here together. Uh, we thank you for the call that you have given to each of us, the invitation that is there, whether we've heard it and responded or, or whether we're still living in denial, that you have called us to be your disciples uh, we thank you. The invitation is there. Holy Spirit, would you draw our hearts into a more uh, intimate and a more close walk with you? We, wanna, we want to be covered by the dust from your steps. We want to walk in the footsteps that you walk. We want to see your feet on the path in front of us and just go where you go. Open our hearts to who it is you might be calling us to invite along the way with us. 
that we would be people who truly are getting outside of ourselves to love the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.